I'm Peter Coward, and you are listening to the Science Lives podcast. Today I'll be talking with Mike Jones, a research analyst for an investment bank. After earning his PhD in microbiology and immunology, Mike went to a biotech startup where he was first a postdoc and then a research scientist. But he was also interested in business and so began working towards a chartered financial analyst designation and a career in finance. We'll talk about his transition from bench scientist to analyst, but first we'll find out what his current job entails and what his day-to-day is like. Mike, welcome to the Science Lives podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Oh, thanks, Peter. Glad to be here. As I mentioned in the intro, you're a research analyst. What does that mean exactly? Well, in finance, if you're a a large hedge fund or investment fund, you pay people to give you insight into particular companies you may invest in or industries that you're interested in. And I'm one of those people. We issue opinions and buy or sell ratings on particular stocks in the biotech industry. And how do you get that information? Well, you know, we mostly rely on publicly sourced information. So things that companies put out, publications, conference presentations, interviews, anything we can get our hands on, really, to try and put it together to make a a mosaic opinion of the company. Do you speak specifically with the company also? Yeah, for sure. We would reach out to the company and speak to them or engage them at a conference. But by the nature of financial trading, we can only deal with publicly available information. Okay, so you're not, you wouldn't talk to other outside experts to, to get their opinion on you know, the tech, technology and that kind of thing? Oh, certainly. We'll reach out to experts in their fields, key opinion leaders in medicine and in the industry to get their opinions on the industry as a whole or on specific breakthroughs or upcoming technology. Okay. And, and do you also focus on a particular therapeutic area or a particular type of technology or, or how does that work? Yeah. Certain analysts will focus on certain industries or certain subsets of the industry. We work on biotech stocks specifically. So I don't, I don't deal with mining or transportation, just healthcare and biotech. And what's the investment horizon that you're looking at? Are you looking at things at a very late stage or do you go really early stage technologies and, and potential therapeutics? Uh, across the board, there certainly are larger companies, Pfizer, or AbbVie, that have products on the market today and are coming up. And then there's new startup companies that don't have any revenue coming in. They're hoping to start making money 10 years from now. And we will try to model out both of those scenarios. In a non-pandemic time, would there be a lot of travel involved? I, I, I hope so. I think so. I'm still pretty new to this industry. So for me, pandemic is all I know. But I, I think if ever we get back to normal, we'll be going to conferences, going to headquarters, having interviews in person. And what do you like about it? I like about it all the things I've liked at every step of my career in science. The reading, it's the diving deep in a subject matter. It's that process of going from, I don't know anything about this to in two weeks, I'm I'm the expert. It's that transition from not knowing to knowing that's so exciting when you're learning about science, especially on such a cutting edge technology. Is it required to have a PhD to do the work that you do or some sort of an advanced degree? It's by no means required. I think it's something that they appreciate. They appreciate people who have dedicated that time into sort of a academic endeavor. And it's certainly 
depending on the subject matter, biotech being mine, it can be a very intimidating technical challenge for people that don't know it coming into it. But it's it's not uh, it's not impossible to do it without a PhD for sure. And there would be jobs available for people like that. Certainly, certainly. If you had a strong finance background, that could be your in. I didn't have a strong finance background, so for me, relying on my PhD is what got me in the door. But you do need a uh, uh, what's called a, a chartered financial analyst designation in order to to do the work that you do. No, you don't need it. It's again something that's appreciated and it's a respected credential in the industry, but it's by no means required. Tell us about how you go about getting the uh, chartered financial analyst designation. So the CFA is. A set of three finance exams, level one, level two, and level three, that are held uh, once a year. And it's just an exam. It's multiple choice exams for the first two years. And then the third year is half written, half multiple choice. And if you pass every level and you have four years of work experience, they credit you with the Chartered Financial Analyst designation. It's uh, It sounds easy as three exams, but it is a grueling amount of work. And it's taken up most of my life for the last three years. So it requires a lot of study to, to be able to pass these exams? Definitely, definitely. When you, when you enroll, they send you six big textbooks. And you've got to know each of them front to back. And it requires hundreds of hours of study for every level. So if, if you're doing this in the context of having another job, you're, you're doing this you know, an hour or two hours every night after work or on, on weekends and that kind of thing? All of the above, for sure. Um, I I love learning in person and listening. So I took a course at the University of Toronto where I could prep for the CFA exams and learn finance in person from someone. That's how I like to learn. So I was doing that once a week for three hours and then studying every night for two to three hours after work. Wow. Yeah, so that's a big investment. And this goes on for a couple of years, basically. Yeah, for sure. Three years, at least, if you pass them. The, the fail rate's pretty high, so most people take four or five years. Wow, that's really, uh, that's quite a commitment. Yeah, I didn't realize what I was getting myself into when I started, but uh, that's what it's turned out to be. Well, let's, let's talk about that. So you, before you um, started working in finance, you were, uh, you'd gotten your PhD in, in microbiology and immunology. What was that experience like? That was great. That was everything i wanted out of grad school. I I came out of undergrad and my master's loving science and wanting to be in science. You know, looking back, I didn't know what a life in science looked like or what the options would be. But being a PhD scientist gives you the opportunity to to do your own independent research and really get to be a scientist. And that's what I got to do. Yeah, I did my PhD at the University of British Columbia. And I really got to explore microbiology and the, the life of bacteria and the structure of proteins. And it was, it was great. Were there any kind of personal epiphanies or anything like that during graduate school? What was kind of the biggest thing that you learned on, on a personal level? You know, I've always loved science, but I never loved being at the lab bench and doing the experiments. I didn't love picking up the petri plates and running the protein gel. But I thought that was the necessary evil. If I wanted to be a scientist, be in science, I had to do the science with my own hands. And I thought everyone felt the same way. And I was at a conference 
in Germany in a castle. And I was talking to this woman who was a postdoc and she was on her second or third postdoc. And I said, why don't you go get a job? Why don't you go do something else? And she said, oh, I love being at the lab bench. I love doing experiments. I would hate to, to find a job that takes me away from that. And that blew my mind because I thought everyone hated experiments and did it as a necessity. And at that moment, I realized, okay, if people love doing this. and I don't. I got to get out of their way. I got to let them do the parts they love. And I got to find the parts of science that I love. And I think that really pushed me towards trying to get away from wet, wet lab science, trying to get towards understanding how the industry works, maybe how finance incorporates into it and leads me to where I am now. I see. And then your next step was to, to do a, a postdoc in industry. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was hoping to get away from academic science into the industrial business of science, the applications. And there was a startup in Toronto that was working on exciting antibody technology that I had a little bit of experience with from my PhD. And it was small and I could start. I thought I could really grow in the company and be exposed to all the parts of science I don't get in an academic lab. And so what was that like when you first started? What was the, it was, I presume it was a different culture than what you were used to in your academic lab? It was hard to describe it as a culture because it was just so small. Hard to describe a, a culture with just three or four people. The company, when I started, was about five people. It grew to 10 people. And it was, it was exciting. It was exciting at times. It was incredibly challenging and frustrating most other times. But it certainly was an experience I'll remember. Working at a company, struggling to make it, struggling to make a breakthrough, struggling to get by financially. It certainly was a unique experience. Was the work pretty intense in terms of time? or It, it wasn't that intense for time. Unfortunately, we were sort of looking for our direction. The first strategy of this company didn't work out. And when I joined, we were sort of pivoting to something else. And we never really found that direction. And so there was actually a lot of downtime when projects got canceled or focuses shifted. There were certainly times of great work, but there were a lot of in-between times where we were sort of just shuffling around or cleaning up or figuring out the next step. And it was actually that amount of time that I had in my hands that gave me the opportunity to start studying for my CFA exam. Okay. So I guess some people might have taken that as a really, I don't know, a lot of anxiety producing. If, if you go to a place and you know the focus is changing from what it was when you first showed up or what you thought it was going to be when you signed on, and you're expecting maybe a pretty focused, intense work environment, and you get something that maybe seems kind of like the opposite of that. I think for a lot of people that would be quite challenging emotionally, but it sounds like you really adapted to that well, partly, I guess, because you had this thought of doing something, I shouldn't say completely different, but fairly different. And so that actually gave you the opportunity to, to work on that. Yeah. In retrospect, it was, it was a nice opportunity. You know, the company, the company was at such a young, fragile state that it was hard to get my emotionally invested into it, thinking that it was going to be a permanent, ongoing concern. And so when things didn't work out so stably, it, it didn't come as such a surprise, which was, I don't know, 
a nice a nice way of looking at it. And so often uh, people working at, at small companies like that get to wear a lot of different hats. Was that the case for you too? Did you have a lot of different things that you were able to kind of work on? Definitely, definitely. My main focus was still in the lab doing science and there wasn't as many opportunities to wear other hats because there was a need there and we didn't have many people to share the share the burden. But I got exposed certainly to to other sides of the management, managing people, working with different sides of the team that uh, I wouldn't have gotten elsewhere. So how long did you end up staying at that company? I was there for just under three years. And at, uh, at that time, the company went out of business. We, we ran out of money and weren't able to get our next round of financing. How did you deal with that emotionally? I would imagine that could have been pretty stressful. It certainly wasn't, uh, wasn't my plan to be out of work, but it didn't come as a huge surprise. I was telling my wife for months, I don't know if we're going to make it another couple of weeks. And we kept, we kept making it and kept making it. And then eventually we didn't make it any longer. It was a surprise, but it sort of was a, a long time coming at that point. And did you have anything else lined up uh, when that happened? I had nothing else lined up, which probably was a little myopic in retrospect. So did you just throw yourself in completely at the CFA or what, what, how did you occupy yourself at that point? I did. I threw myself into studying, finishing up my level two exam, which I passed. And then I passed that and I thought, this is the time. I got two levels under me. I can make this transition to finance. And I set about trying to do that. And uh, that wasn't as easy as I'd hoped. How so? Well, I was out of work for over a year. In the middle of that time, a global pandemic happened. So I'm sure that affected my chances of getting a new job. But transitioning from science to a whole new field, I think, was the harder part. And what what made that difficult? Having credentials behind my name, like two levels of the CFA and a PhD and a master's, got me in the doors to a lot of places. I was getting interviews at hedge funds and investment banks, but they weren't a real rush to to hire me because I didn't have any finance on my resume. I didn't have the comfort of talking the talk or being in the industry on a day-to-day basis. And it was it's tough to find a place that valued having a biology background in a financial world. Is there anything you could have done about that kind of proactively, or is that just kind of inevitable based on the path that you took to get there? Hmm. I mean, if I could go back and do it differently, certainly there's lots of things I could have done differently. I didn't make this decision to try to change directions until quite late. And at that point, I had no, no, no experience in my resume. So if I had decided this a long years ago, I could have tried to get my foot in the door earlier and work on the experience side. I'm not sure what I could have done differently in retrospect knowing what I knew, but say la vie. Yeah, I guess I was just curious if there, you know, if there are internship possibilities or other, I don't know, kind of practical kinds of coursework type of things that would have kind of convinced the people you were talking to that things would, that you are you a more attractive candidate. I think there certainly are lots of opportunities like that. Maybe I was being a bit arrogant 
I was hoping I wouldn't need to. I was hoping having doctor in front of my name would thrust me into my dream job. And uh, I, I was wrong. At least it took me longer than I expected. Yeah. And then how did you deal with finances and stuff during that time? Well, I'm very fortunate to have a well-to-do wife. She's a doctor here in Toronto. And she helped. And I try to live frugally. That, that helps as well. And so this went on for, you said, a year or so that you were uh, looking for work and then studying for your level three as well? Yeah, just over a year. And I guess because you, um, the CFA is not absolutely required, you can be looking for work before you've actually got the, the final designation that that is a viable strategy for people trying to move into this business. Oh, most definitely. Yeah, it's something often people pursue while they're in their careers, sort of. They want a, a promotion or to shift into a different role, then they'll go back and get a CFA. And my perception is that the, the lifestyle for analysts is, is also pretty intense. So is it hard to find time for, for people to find time to study for these exams while they're working? I, I can only assume. I can only assume. I have, I have a friend through the course who wakes up every morning at 3.30 and studies before he goes to work because he never seemed to find time after work. And that just seems like a difficult bargain to make, but the one he's made. Yeah, it sounds pretty intense. So that kind of brings us back to your, your current position. How is your job structured in terms of, do you work for a, a large group or are you work mostly by yourself? I work for a large group, the entire research department. And then within that group, there are senior analysts who publish the research under their name. And then for them work associates and interns and lower level researchers. And I'm one of those. So I work for an analyst on his team. And do you work with, and you say so you're in this, this big group, do you work closely with your other colleagues in your department or is everyone kind of pursuing their own stuff individually and then reporting it up to their supervisor? It's more working, working independently and then reporting it up. Within your team, you work pretty closely and it's work from home now, but you're on the phone a lot with them discussing and coordinating. And then the, as a team, you publish research reports or communication uh, on the companies you cover. And then the talk between teams are either collaborative on certain projects or cer certain team building sort of exercises. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and to uh, share your story. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Peter. This was great.